Hello everyone and welcome back to Crying Pain and Paranoia. It's us! We're back! Um, happy October. This is our second regular episode of October. Still extra spooky. It's the third regular episode. It is the third regular episode. <laughs> oh no, I forgot that we have already yeah. recorded two. It's okay. My bad. It's the second time we're recording for October. Yes. So, this week we're going to be talking about cases that changed everything. Mm-hmm. So, like, cases that changed legislation or, you know, paranormal community, true crime community, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I'm very excited. Um, just a reminder, Nightmare Week starts October 24th. It's the Tuesday before Halloween. It's Tuesdays on Halloween. Ooh. Super weird. But I... I'm so excited. Remember to tune in to Nightmare Week. It's going to be the scariest cases we've ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, we'll jump into our pain scales. Emily, how are you feeling today? Today, I had a really bad migraine. So I feel like, you know in Corpse Bride, that guy that splits into two? <laughs> Is I it was, Corpse Bride? I don't think I've seen Corpse Bride, actually. <gasps> I know, I know. I know. Emily. Her name's Emily, even. I know. I'm a Nightmare Before Christmas girly. I'm a, just a Tim Burton girl. I know. I think it's... I'm a fake fan. It's okay. I can't remember if it's this movie or not. But anyways, the guy splits in half. My head feels like that way. Like, clean down the middle. Just... Very guillotine good. style. Very good. Yeah. How do you feel? So, I thought of this one on the drive over, because I don't ever feel good in the car, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um... You were a Mythbusters girly growing up, right? A hundred percent. Do you remember the episode where they talked about the torture tactic in the Vietnam War mm-hmm. with the bamboo shoots? Mm-hmm. So basically, they would put prisoner above new bamboo shoots, and they grow so fast that like the next day they would be impaled by bamboo. Yeah. So I feel like the bamboo has grown like up through my heels. All the way up to, like, my mid-back. That's a fair assessment. Yeah. My, like, pretty much my shoulder blades, under my shoulder blades and lower It's just everything below that. Yeah. Oof. Down for the count. Yeah. I think I'm also starting to flare. Oh, no. I know. It's just not a good week to be an Emily. I can, like, feel the inflammation. (laughs) It's just not a good week to be an Emily. Serious. Anyway, let's get started. Mm-hmm. This podcast contains sensitive material such as violence, murder, paranormal activity, and other adult topics. So listener discretion is advised. While we do research all of our episodes, we are just two Emilys with a microphone and a passion for all things spooky. Take it with a grain of salt. All of our sources will be in the show notes. Okay, Emily. So today I'm going to be telling you about Megan Kanka. Pretty sure that's how you say her last name. Okay. So Megan Kanka, seven years old, left her house in a quiet and safe community of Hamilton Township, New Jersey, around 6 p.m. on the 29th of July, 1994, to ride her bike. She, along with her 12-year-old brother and 9-year-old sister, would often play on the street with their friends in the area. Megan's parents, Richard and Maureen, much like other parents in the community, had no inhibitions about their children playing outside. 
This aura of normalcy along with the Konkins' lives would be brutally shattered by the crimes of a predator living just across the street from the little girl. Mm-hmm. After seeing Megan off, Maureen lay down for a short rest that evening. When Megan hadn't returned rather uncharacteristically a few hours later, Maureen became instantly worried. She was informed by the neighbors that they too had last seen Megan play outside that evening. One neighbor from across the street told Maureen that Megan and her friend Courtney had come to admire his new boat in his front yard around 6.30 p.m. Police were called and arrived around 8.49 p.m. to file a missing persons report and undertake a search for the little girl. The whole neighborhood was scoured to no avail. The same neighbor, Jesse, I don't know how to say that name. His name is Jesse. 36, when asked about when he had seen that girl last, he gave the police different details. He'd seen the little girl around 2.30 p.m. per what he remembered. Discomfied (laughs) by this changing account, the police asked to search the house he lived in, owned by Joseph Seifel, who readily gave permission, and which Jesse shared with Brian, Jane, and Joseph's mother. So basically, he lives in this house, but other people own it, and they gave permission for the house to be searched. Okay. Police noticed Jesse perspiring profusely and looking incredibly nervous. Based on this, they would ask to search his car, which contained a toy chest and black felt. A horrifying discovery would soon incriminate Jesse and give answers as to the whereabouts of Megan Kankana. Kanka. Kanka. Sorry. Hmm. On the boat that Jesse had told police had enticed the curiosity of the still missing Megan, a rope and bloodstains were found. The waistband of a child's pants were also discovered. Jesse was brought in for questioning and he readily revealed where the girl was Mercer County Park. Jesse, who had served six years in two previous convictions of child sexual assault, had sexually assaulted Megan. Mm-hmm. In fearing discovery by her parents and jail time, he killed her. He told investigators that he had been watching her a while and lured her into his house that evening with the pretext of showing her his new puppy. Criminal. As I said, like he sexually assaulted her and he did a few times before and after he killed her. And it was... A brutal attack that I don't really want to go into. That's fair. Um, so he, after he killed her, he transferred her to the park and hid her in the weeds and eventually, like, buried her there. Mm-hmm. Um, during the investigation, this child killer remained calm and emotionless, even complaining about the bite marks that the girl had left on him. She was fighting so hard. I'm so proud of her. I know. He conveniently left out details on the violence with which he... Sorry. hmm So, basically, this was a really gruesome murder and attack, and that's why I keep pausing and, like... Oh, well, yeah. Not wanting to say this. I'm reading from an article, and... She's just I a guess, baby. Yeah, they didn't really care about sparing the details um Uh, but i'm not gonna do that to you guys 
And also, this is a child. Yeah. So, um, there was more evidence found. There were ligature marks on her matching his belt. And her hair was found in his bedroom and car. And, um, she had internal bruising from the attack as well. I know. And blunt force trauma to her eyes and her head. And the jury unanimously sentenced him to the death penalty. Woohoo! So he was. I know. So he was also convicted of kidnapping charges, aggravated assault, and two counts of felony murder. That's a lot of charges. Get him. I love that they sicked him with every charge they could. His sentence would be um, commune to life imprisonment without parole after New Jersey did away with the death penalty in 2007. Which is fine with me. Let him rot. Exactly. So, Megan's parents were appalled to find out that a repeat offender who had previously pleaded guilty to two child sexual abuse allegations was allowed to be in such proximity to their child. They were adamant that this anonymity of sex offenders was the primary reason that Megan died the way she did. Mm-hmm. Literally across the street from their family. Which is crazy. They had no idea. Because, like, now you can... There's registers, and I'm sure you're going to get into mm-hmm. it. But you can look at it and be like, oh, kids, you see this face? He talks to you, you run. Exactly. You come talk to me, and I'll mess him up. The little girl's death raised a huge hue and cry in the community and later in all of America to better protect children from sexual predators. Megan's law mandating that information on perpetrators accused of sexual crimes against children to be made public passed in the state of New Jersey. Megan's law paved the way for a national initiative called by then-President Bill Clinton for National Registry of Sex Offenders. In 1994, Congress approved Megan's Law as part of a crime bill calling all states to develop mechanisms to inform communities that a sex offender was moving there. Um, I also want to mention, I'm pretty sure in this same crime bill, at least it was also Bill Clinton, Mm -hmm. passed um, Amber Alert. Oh, okay. That's when Amber Alert was created. Mm -hmm. So, shockingly... Megan's law sparked controversy. People claimed that constant surveillance of sex offenders who had already been treated in institutions was a violation of their civil rights. No. If you harm children, you don't have rights. No. Thank you. Game over. You're done. Bye. President Clinton echoed the sentiments of all petitioners supporting Megan's law. Quote, there is no right greater than a parent's right to raise a child in safety and love. Yeah. If it's just knowing that you're there, that's not an infringement, like... Exactly. If you really didn't do it, if you really are clean, it shouldn't bother you. And also, if they were convicted on felony charges, they don't have the same rights anymore anyway. You can't vote, you ha- you can't have huh? a gun. You don't have rights. You don't, like, you don't get them back. You did the time, you do the crime. Or you did the crime, you do the time. Exactly. I said that backwards, but you guys know what I mean. (laughs) So, several decades after Megan's case, people are truly starting to question the efficacy of the law. State sex offender registries are often not viewed by communities, and the ratification of Megan's law are different in each state. 
Megan's law also doesn't provide methods to inform neighborhoods of the proximity of sex offenders in their midst. Many states mandate active notification by law enforcement, which means policemen would come and visit every house in a community to warn them that a sex offender is coming into their community. Mm-hmm. Some require passive notification where neighbors have to check registries frequently to keep up with offenders. Um, the main problem with Megan's Law is the expectation it places on child sex offenders to register themselves. I don't think that's true. And the fact that offenders that have not yet been caught and charged will still pose a very tangible threat. So, this part of the article is like kind of devil's advocate being like, it doesn't work. But also... I hate sentiments like this where it's like, why try if it doesn't solve the problem? It makes it better. Also, I know, at least in some cities in Arizona, I don't know if it's all of them, they will send you something in the mail that's like so-and-so is moving in. Interesting. It's a thing in Tempe, I know. Hmm. Um... But, like, my dad growing up, he would check the sex offender list periodically Mm -hmm. and go drive by their houses to make sure they weren't doing anything. Your dad's a true one. I know, right? And we didn't find this out till like, we were all graduated high school. Wow. Isn't that I understand checking it, but the fact that he drove by is, he's going, he's going above and beyond. I know, and, like, I don't know what he would have seen, but... You know, he was trying. It's very funny. I love that. What a guy. What a guy. But, and I do know for certain crimes, and I think it's certain states, mm-hmm. that you are automatically put on the registry. Yeah, I think At it a depends. certain point, you don't put yourself on it. Mm-mm. I think in some states you do. I should have looked that up, but... I remember... Anyway, you know what I'm talking yeah. about, though, right? When I worked at the funeral home, my boss, she lived kind of close to where I lived. Um, and there was a sex offender that lived in her neighborhood, and she had an elementary school right behind her. So she would sit out all the time and make sure he wasn't doing anything creepy. Oh and I don't think he lived close. Like, he lived just outside of the barrier where you can live next to a school. Yeah. Because, like, they have, you they can't, have rules. Yeah, but he lived, like, literally right outside that barrier. Like, as close as he could get. And I think one time she, like, found him in the bushes or something. And then she never saw him again oh because she reported it. They locked him up. I don't know what they did. She was like, well, I never saw him again. Because she was the kind of person that would just, like, go get him. I'm like, yeah, you go get him. Maybe that's what my dad was waiting for. Maybe. Protecting all the kids. Be good. Yeah, I was just looking this up. So, it says in Arizona, sexual offenders are required to register. Okay. And they also have to go undergo a review before their release. I assume from prison. Mm-hmm. They also will be held at a hospital after their release. Interesting. To me, like, you need help, I guess. You need help in the brain. Interesting. So, I think I was right where it kind of depends where you are. 
Which would make sense. Like, it's mm-hmm. all basically the same, just different processes. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. That's all I have. I cut out quite a bit because I did not want to go into the details. Which is A-okay. Because this is a seven-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. And, like, I've seen her picture. And, like, it looks like any other little girl that, like, we grew up with that we see, like... Well, and she would have still been alive today if she weren't killed. Yeah. It's not that long ago. 1994. That's so sad. And it happened, so... It said she left her house at 6, and he lured her in at 6.30. You're joking. It happened in a matter of 30 minutes. He was watching and waiting. For an opportunity. He probably noticed that her mom wasn't out watching, or, like, Mm -hmm. maybe even saw that she laid down to take a nap. Or the older kids walked away for a second yeah. something like that like they separated yeah it's it's, it's horrible. horrible to think about i hope she's resting in peace i hope so too. poor baby mm-hmm. okay Emily, it's your turn we're gonna swing into a little bit of different action here give me just a second that is a-okay i do not like talking about children very much there's children in this one just not quite in the same way this one's a little bit more lighthearted, i guess so i'm doing something from the paranormal community i thought who better than ed and lorraine warren um oh yes i'm gonna repeat this again i think they're phonies peace i think so too actually the more i hear about them well and he's probably a pedophile and, like, the way he talks about young girls sometimes makes me really uncomfortable knowing some of the information that I know. And then, you know, Lorraine enabling that. And covering it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Women who cover up for disgusting men are on the same level as those disgusting men, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, it's nasty. Um, but I can't discredit the view that they brought on the paranormal world like yeah the visibility yeah that they drew to it so that's why i chose one of their cases mm-hmm. um i'm not going to talk very much about them because again they gross me out yeah and we've talked about them here and there yeah um so this one is actually the true story of the bridgeport poltergeist on lundley street this happened at around in the 1970s, around the same time the exorcist had happened. Oh, okay. So you can kind of imagine what's happening in the paranormal Tentures world. Are high. Yeah. So I picked this one because I would have done Amityville because that's arguably their biggest case. Yes. But we've already done Amityville. <laughs> but this one, the police are involved. Oh, okay. Which is so weird and rare. That is weird. Um, I got most of my information from the lineup and this book i bought on amazon uh it's called the world's most haunted house the true story of the bridgeport poltergeist on lindsey's on lindley street by william j hall shout out to lindsey love you lindsey you're on the brain today um yeah this guy was a magician which is really fun uh hold on let me read you this thing emily can you imagine going to your family's Thanksgiving and having to tell them that you're a magician? <laughs> I would love to see the reactions, actually. Um, I'm sorry, that's really funny. Yeah, he's 
a little biography at the back is William J. Hall was born and raised in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where the events of the book took place. He watched the news coverage on Lindley Street haunting on TV when he was 10 years old. After more than 25 years of a pro- as a professional magician, Hall knows how to create and recognize illusions. He's experienced in researching the unexplained from folklore to fortune telling. He has syndicated his syndicated 1990s column Magic in the Unknown ran for 6 years in multiple local papers in his home state. Okay. I love everything about this man. What guy? <laughs> what a guy. Um so I'm just going to get into it now. Nestled along the Long Island South shoreline lies the bustling city of Bridgeport, Connecticut. This historic seaport city lays claim to the birthplace of the Frisbee, the former home of showman P.T. Barnum, and the notorious haunted house that nearly tore a family apart over 40 years ago. I love that New England is just so haunted. There's, like, what else is New England, right? Huh? Connecticut's New England, right? I'm not sure. It's that general area, though. East Coast-ish. Yeah, I don't know the exact states. Okay. Uh, the Bridgeport Poltergeist made national headlines in the 1970s, and many local residents remember that baffling and terrifying era like it was yesterday. Poltergeist is also a very fun word for some reason. I love the word poltergeist. There's a corpse song called Poltergeist. We love that for corpse. He's my guilty pleasure artist. (laughs) No shame, honestly. I know there's nothing of substance, but that's not the point. Okay, you're gonna hear me flip around a lot, but I'm the one editing this, so it's fine. (laughs) so in 1968 small items were found out of place for which neither jerry or laura could account through the owners of the Mm -hmm. house uh laura and jerry gooden in 1969 rosemary the daughter of the hoffmans friends of the goodens became uh marcia's only real friend uh so marcia's adopted by them i forgot i need to give a little backstory they had a they had a son but he had cerebral palsy, I believe it was. So he passed really young. Mm-hmm. And then she had a full hysterectomy so she couldn't have any more kids. Oh, wow. So they adopted Marcia. Yeah, Marcia. Because um, she's Native American and so is Laura. She's, I think, I'm not sure if she's full Native American. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. Marcia was, though. Gotcha. Um. So things started, like, happening around the house, like, small, little things would move, plates would move, Mm -hmm. the couch would move, the TV would move a little bit, and, like, there was always pounding on the the wall, like, Mm. to the point where they were like, okay, it's happening again, and then they would always (laughs) kind of look at each other and pretend it's not happening, and things like that. Yes, like Alyssa! So, the Goodens made their first call to the Bridgeport Police in 1972 um, to complain of the rhythmic pounding. That, in fact, was the second year the Goodens had been putting up these particular sounds. They complained of them in November 1971. It was like the house was being stoned, Jerry said. Jeez. Um, They were not frightened, just annoyed. Mm Mm-hmm. Jerry didn't believe the construction had anything to do with the problem because there was construction going on at the hospital just down the road. Um, because they'd occurred when no work would have been going on. The noises had also begun near Halloween, which would have suggested a human. So they're like, oh, okay. You know, it's pranking, or it can mm-hmm. be literally anything. The sounds had a definite pattern, Jerry said, and occurred at all hours of the day and night. The noises would begin as a light tapping and then work up into an awful banging. 
One of their friends and neighbors was an officer, John Holsworth, of the Bridgeport Police Department. When Jerry asked for his help um, in November 1972, Officer Holsworth suggested they make a tape recording of the noise so he could better help the police and city officials discover what this was. The two of them set up a recorder at 3 a.m. and the recorded sounds on cassette when they started again at 5.20 a.m. At that time, the noises were pronounced. They had started in the kitchen and then followed John and Jerry. And a few hours later, the entire family, as they moved from room to room. Mm-hmm. Around that time, the neighbor who the Goodens had suspected of pranking them moved away, and the noises seemed to stop. The Goodens were relieved, but only for a little while. Very soon, their trouble began. And, like, more issues started happening. Mm-hmm. So they had called the police department, the fire department, the city officials... And they'd all tried to help. None of those agencies ever found a satisfactory explanation for the origin of these noises. The firemen checked the foundation, business, er, basement, not businesses, that's okay, (laughs) and surrounding neighborhood and found nothing. Even geological factors were checked. The Goodens would switch back and forth between believing it had to do with underground springs, which flowed beneath a nearby cemetery, and the idea of evil spirits, like so many that investigated. They were out of ideas and kept adding more questions. Jerry eventually would go on to say, I took apart the piping and ductwork in the basement, but found nothing. The gas company said it may be um, trapped air or something or other, so he ended up switching to an electric oil-fired furnace. It had nothing to do with the starting of the basement freezer. Um, it had nothing to do with the start. whatever. We had that thing for 14 years. So all these sounds, they had all these experts come in and nothing. Mm-hmm. The noises would sometimes stop for two weeks at a time, giving the Goodens a break. Um, But unfortunately, more bizarre incidents began occurring in the summer of 1974. Jerry and Laura saw a disembodied hand in the window, um, but they investigated and found nothing outside or inside. Laura answered the door after three knocks in in succession, but no one was there until she noticed wet footprints on the, the porch. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a dry night with no moisture. So, mm. little sus. And then doors would open by themselves, chairs moving from spot where they were left, so on, so on. Okay, on one incident on Saturday, November 23rd, 1974, um, they had safely made it back to the little house after an outing. So Jerry had noticed that Marcy's television, which was normally sat on a high shelf, was lying on her bed, screened down with the TV cord and antenna antenna wires hanging from the back. Jerry was puzzled by the situation, but put it back on the shelf. He went to the kitchen to join Laura, only to find flying dishes rising out of the sink and going around the room. They smashed one by one, as if hurtling themselves. Oh my gosh. Um, With enough force to shatter it into many pieces on the indoor and outdoor carpet. Um... Service for 12 had been reduced to dishes for only one or two people in less than a few minutes. Man. As Jerry bent down to pick up the dish tray, five knives flew out of the knife block and flew across the kitchen. Laura stepped back into the doorway and Jerry ducked, covering his face, and then dropped to the floor as they sped towards him. Luckily, none of the knives hit him. He looked around, stood up, and went over to examine the knife block. He reached out to check it, but withdrew his hands just as the whole knife block pulled itself off the wall. He reached out and defensively caught it. Laura heard something behind her and turned around. Two legs off the table that were closest to her lifted off the floor and continued um, until it had turned completely over. Laura stood up, there, um, stood up, 
there and dumbfounded and screaming. I said that really weird, but... Um, before she could begin contemplating what had just happened, the 300-pound refrigerator slowly started to slide and rise, hovering a good six inches off the floor. It rotated to the right a quarter turn, then lowered itself slowly back to the floor, standing at an odd angle as if to make sure everyone could see it was out of place. With that over, the heavy wooden 23-inch TV console, which stood to the left of the sink, slowly tilted itself screen-side down and then slammed fast and hard onto Laura's right foot, smashing two of her toes. Jeez. Jerry hurried in with a bag of groceries, and he lifted the TV to help her sit down, and then blood poured out of her toes where it had been hit. Oh, my gosh. And then here's a picture for you. So it's like the size of the counter. Can you see it in the middle there? And that fell on her foot. Oh, my gosh. It's like one of those old TVs from the 70s. Yeah, the TV console where it's just like wood. Yeah. The house remained quiet after that episode had concluded. Uh, Marcia's TV fell down from the shelf again and landed on her ankle. Um, She was okay, though. Jeez. And then the bathroom was a complete mess because Marcia had gotten up to go to the bathroom. And she stood there. Um, with her hands on her head, still protecting herself from falling objects. The steel rod that had held the shower curtain had become detached and almost hit Marcia on the head, eventually coming to a rest in the tub. So, that's kind of what was happening there. Mm-hmm. They called police. They called... Uh, basically everyone they Basically could. everyone. And Ed and Lorraine caught a glimpse of this and were like, Oh, that's so weird. Let's go investigate. Because mm-hmm. they inserted themselves into every situation. Yes, they did. Um, but Paul Eno, um, I think that's how you say his name, a 21-year-old seminary student was looking forward to having a quiet dinner with Ed and Lorraine Warren that evening. They had become friends after the Warrens contacted Paul upon reading an article he had written on the paranormal. He had driven the 60 miles from his home in East Hartford to the Warrens' home in Monroe. Paul was a dedicated and very intelligent young man. On the trip, his vehicle had a flat tire that had delayed him just enough, so he arrived as Ed was returning from Bridgeport to meet Lorraine and Father Charbonneau at their house. Um, And this is also an expert from the book. I just had it typed out um, from this article. Mm -hmm. Paul, are you in a highly spiritual state right now, Lorraine asked. The young man knew that indicated there was a case that he was about to be drawn into it. I guess so. What's up? We'll fill you on the way. Father Charbonneau pulled into the street. And they all got into the Warren's car and headed back to Lindley Street. By that time, people, new people were in the house. Joining the police officer who was still, who were still going in and out of the tiny bungalow. Even Barbara Carter, Marcia's tutor, was there. It was at a little past noon the Warrens, Paul Eno, and Father Charbonneau were more commonly known as Father Bill entered. And they were introduced to each other. Jerry welcomed more potential help, especially because the police and firemen had not been able to do anything worthwhile at that point. Jerry retrieved a cassette and handed it to Ed, saying it contained the strange banging sounds that had been haunting the family before things had escalated during the past few days. It was recorded during the night back in 1972 with the help of the neighbor and friend officer John Holsworth. Laura entered through the front door, hobbling with a cane as she returned from the hospital, She grabbed Paul's arms and said, Have you ever seen anything like this? Jerry gave her a warm and affectionate greeting. Ed, Jane, and Marcia followed her back inside. The diagnosis was two damaged toes, one of which was broken. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jerry helped her into her favorite brown recliner. 
It's fun to have so many people in the house, Marcia said when she was introduced to Father Father Bill. Ironically, as soon as she finished making the statement, she turned and left the room. Ed took Paul aside and took him to stay with Marcia at all times. He wanted to explain, It is common in a hoax case for a child to be the perpetrator, and it also frequently a contributor to the legitimate paranormal cases. Children are great imitators, and they quickly learn that once the chaos chaos quiets down, people leave. One way to get them to stay is to help things along. Paul nodded and went with Marcia. She located her, or he located her in the basement, where she was holding the cat and talking with two police officers. The men were trying to cajole her into admitting she was behind it all. Paul Mm. introduced himself, and they eventually returned upstairs together. Marcia was sitting in her room on her bed uh, that was facing the wall. Lieutenant Coco was hearing the officer Barney, um, let's call him Officer Barney, in the hallway when they heard a rattling noise. They shuffled off to the master bedroom to see what was happening. Jerry's brother Edmund was already at the entrance to the room looking in. They immediately noticed movement on the wall. A large crucifix slowly floated down and rested on the floor against Jerry and Laura's bed. Marcia joined them to see what was going on. There was no one else in the bedroom. Lieutenant Coco took Edmund by the arm and said, I didn't see anything either. Then Coco turned to Ed Warren, who was also nearby, and asked, Could you please talk to the Walsh and explain to him what's going on? Ed called Police Superintendent Joseph Walsh and told him what the incidents were caused by poltergeist activity. Walsh laughed and said, come on, please tell the guys to get down there and clear it up and get the heck out of there. Everyone was now back in the kitchen in the living room. The police were talking to Marcia, who was now sitting in the middle recliner, apparently enjoying the company and excitement of all the people. Marcia leaned forward to to listen to the police officers who were talking to her. The room suddenly became silent. The recliner in which Marcia was sitting started to rise towards the ceiling. Everybody understood the what. Nobody understood the how. The undeniable reality was that the heavy 1970 recliner was doing a somersault halfway through the floor in the ceiling. It completely flipped 360 degrees, smashing against the end table in and smashing an end table in back and dropping Miss Marcia to the floor. She screamed, hitting her head as she landed. She began crying as her mother moved to her side. A police officer tried to, to right the recliner after it. Two had fallen to the floor but had difficulty doing it alone. Another officer joined him and with some effort the two managed to sit it up and move it back to position. The state of mayhem continued at the Gooden home. The banging had returned and was heard at least once an hour. The kitchen table would regularly fall over and one end would lean on the chair and make its way past the chair to the floor. The chairs would fall away from the table, landing on their backs without any warning um, or without any noise that they were moved. None of it was producing vibrations or shaking the floor. A light bulb in the lamp in the living room suddenly shattered. In the kitchen, Ed Warren found the knives on the floor rotating and swiveling in various positions. Jeez. This is probably the worst poltergeist activity I've heard of. Mm -hmm. Because it's so constant. Yeah. And, like, multiple things happening at once. Mm-hmm. Three deliberate solid knocks were heard on the kitchen door. Jerry, exasperated and ready for a fight, quickly went to see who or what it was. Again, no one was there. Back in their living room, the tulip lamps had begun rattling. Jane entered the room to report the rosemary beads in Marcia's bedroom were moving, repeatedly flapping against the wall. The wooden 
wind chime in the hallway started swaying periodically and making noise, causing everyone to move their heads to see it at the same time. The fire department already checked the cellar jolts, joists, I don't know that word, joists? Mm-hmm. Foundation and even the window seals. A second group had gone to check the new construction site at St. Vincent's Hospital. They all came to the same conclusion. There was no explanation for the events taking place. Um, as a last resort, a pair of electric and plumbing inspectors, Guido and Charlie, was called in to check those systems. When they arrived, the police temporarily detained them outside. That had seemed odd to them, but upon entering the living room, it became obvious. They looked at each other, but didn't comment. They moved along and checked out the basement where both electrical and plumbing were in order. They returned to the kitchen, scratching their heads. As they looked around the room, the refrigerator rose from the floor and glided some six to eight feet to the left before coming to a rest. A police officer immediately directed the two inspectors to the door. Leave now and keep your mouth shut about what you just saw. This is a police matter, the, the officer said sternly. Is it? I guess what are so. going to do? The two of them went to the car together and got in. Did you see what I just saw in there? Seriously. Unbelievable, they'd said. Um, a little past 2 p.m., things quieted down. It was time for the police to leave. The four original responding police officers said goodbye to the family and advised them to report any other disturbances. As they all walked down the front steps, Officer Telmick lagged behind. He had called out to them, and he had forgot something and would be right back. He had an idea. Telmick was convinced that whatever it was was in some way an intelligent presence. It seemed to taunt and tease, like playing a child's game and um, mounting an occasional temper tantrum, unaware and unconcerned about any problems associated with damage. Mm-hmm. He also figured this was the perfect time to take a closer look. He saw that the Goodens and the Warrens were preoccupied in the kitchen, and he made his way to Marcia's room, where he planned to undertake an experiment of sorts. He thought, if you can hear me move something. Immediately, several items on Marcia's wall came to life, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. The baby picture shook, the cross shook, the cherub shook, but the wall itself did not vibrate. All of these items seemed to be answering his request. Okay, you can stop now. And everything stopped at once. Telmic believed that he had just communicated with the entity or entities. Mm-hmm. After deciding that this was one of those things that should remain private for the time being, it most certainly was not going to find its way to any police report. That just might become a career breaker. He would not speak of this for the next 40 years. Wow. That was rough. But... <laughs> They just had a lot of people come in and check it out. That's what um, it sounds like. The fridge would move all the time for people, and they're like, this is a 600-pound fridge. Like, The poltergeist is like, look what I can do. do, 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 do. Yeah. Um, and eventually, it was like widespread news. Everyone was like, did you hear about the poltergeist on the street? Yeah. And because of the exorcism situation, not the, exor- the exorcist happening, like the mm-hmm. movie, everyone was like, Oh, no. You bet your bottom dollar we're checking that out. Yeah. So they had to have a police line outside of the building. Oh, wow. Um, Because there were crowds. Mm-hmm. And it was crazy. Um, the situation seemed to be getting more intense when a few weeks into the investigation, a police officer witnessed the young girl, Marcia, attempting to tip over a TV with her foot when she thought no one was watching. Mm-hmm. Being caught in the act, she soon confessed that she was responsible for all the activities in the house and explained how she'd done it all. The event was soon declared a hoax by the relief police, who ended the official investigation, although questions remained to how Marcia had been able to perpetrate some of the witnessed events when she wasn't in the house. 
Yeah, I don't agree with that. She didn't levitate the armchair that she was in. Mm-hmm. That two police officers struggle to get upright again. Yep. No. The majority of investigators pressed and curious crowds all soon went away. They were like, oh, she did it. And, like, I can understand her feeding into it for sure. And yeah. And most theories are that she's the one that actually caused the poltergeist activity. Like, the state of mind. Like, she wanted something to happen. Mm. Like, what's the word for it? Sammy Colby used it all the time. Like, inviting it. Yeah. Inviting the energy. You want it to happen so bad that it does happen. Yeah. That's Manifesting what, it. Yes. That's what most people think it was. I don't doubt that. Because, like, she was bullied at school and stuff, and it mm-hmm. was just not a good time for her. Because, like, if you think, like, there's a lot of haunted places that are haunted because there's a lot of trapped energy there from, like, a lot of people dying or, like, a lot of abuse happening, a lot of sad things, like, a lot of people living there before, like, stuff like that. Yeah. Like, residual energy and bad energy. It's not like she's being abused there, but she knew her family before she was adopted. She was the youngest of a lot of children, mm-hmm. and she was the only one that the family didn't want. So oh, she had wow. a lot of these emotions. A lot of trauma. And then she came into a family where they were still grieving the loss of their son. Like, they had little shrines mm-hmm. to him, and they had a picture of him in his casket at one point. Oh, wow. So it was probably just really traumatizing. And, like, she probably was, like, stop paying attention to your son who's no longer here like i'm here like Mm -hmm. attention seeking behaviors yeah which is like i can totally see it but like and it's also age appropriate uh uh-huh because she's only she's in elementary school yeah and so everyone was like oh yeah she she doesn't understand the implications but at the same time it's like and that's what the police officer was saying is like the poltergeist to him seemed intelligent but also didn't understand the implications of the damage Mm -hmm. almost like a kid uh-huh. So it was, like, mirroring her yeah. behavior. One of the people think... There's a lot of theories. You can read the book if you want, and it has more of those. But someone thought she had, like, telekinesis. I don't believe in that. I but. don't think so. <laughs> and she was making it happen. And I'm just thrown by the the refrigerator. She wouldn't have been able to move a refrigerator. No. Unless it was, like, on a, like, pulley system or something. I think the mirroring of energy is real, though. Yeah. Um, so I just kind of want to share witness interviews with you now. Mm. And they're legit. The police reports. Mm-hmm. The firemen reports. So interesting. Um, so this one's from Fire Chief Jack Miss Messina. Um, like, so many... Of the witnesses who were there at the time, he was initially skeptical, but he surprised himself about how, he was surprised at how distressed the family was. Jerry was beside himself. In the house, which was a mess due to whatever was going on, Laura was in a chair near the window. Marcia was sitting next to her. Jerry stood in front of two police officers. Um, the fire chief saw the TV tip over. It was impossible for Mar- Marcia to have done it because she was physically unable to get close enough to it. Next, everyone heard a large bang from the kitchen and found that the heavy portable TV had fallen with no one in the room. It slammed down with a noise much bigger than just gravity. It was like it was pushed hard. Yeah. Marcia was in the middle of a recliner next to a chair, was in the middle of the recliner next to her mother. It was standing right in front of her and her chair flipped. 
Um, it didn't recline. It didn't flip backward. It went completely over by itself. Wow. Um, I was scared her head was going to smash against the wall. She was sitting on the edge of the chair, not tilting back. You can't flip a reclining chair like that because it had gone backwards and completely rotated. Yeah, that's not how that works. And she was sitting on the edge. Mm-hmm. I didn't believe my eyes when I saw this thing flip over. Her feet were not even on the ground. She, I'm sorry. She was sitting crisscross applesauce. <laughs> I was just reading it and it's yeah problematic. Mm-hmm. She was sitting crisscross applesauce when it happened with her feet tucked under her. Her arms were on her lap. She was hurt. She screamed and after she said her head hurt. Oh. This cops didn't stay too long after that. Um, they said bye. Yeah. Even if this is a hoax, I hand it to them. But these people were not that sharp, and a 10-year-old couldn't pull that off. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you just call them dumb? <laughs> it's, it's a little problematic. That's funny. Sorry. No, no. I'm like, uh. Sorry. Um, the next one's from the Deputy Chief of Operations. Marcia was standing near a chair, and the chair started moving. I clearly saw the chair in her. Marcia was looking at me. I was four inches off the... It was four inches off the floor when it floated. I hadn't wanted to believe what I saw. It was like the chair was pushed back down versus how it would be if it had just dropped. Yeah. It hit the floor harder than it should have. I was reluctant to talk about it because it's outside of my area of expertise. And I later found out to be a hoax. My department looks so stupid. I believe that there's something going on here. Laura told someone there was too much noise in the house and she took walks. I called Father Doyle and he told and told Father Doyle, I'm not drunk, but this is what's happening here. Which is crazy. Said, listen. He's like so about that. And then here's just another quote. Jerry Solf Solfin tried to move the refrigerator from where it had moved to and he had trouble. If you could give me $35,000, I would give you the house, I, if, even if I had to rebuild it. I'm just a simple guy. I don't believe in ghosts, but, but when these things happen the way they're happening, they must be a power bigger than me. Yeah. Um, and they tried selling the house, but it wouldn't sell. No one wanted it? It didn't sell in their lifetime. Wow. They moved out of it, and like, no one really knows what happened to Marcia, but they assume she's living in Canada somewhere with her own family. Oh, wow. And it was just a crazy story. So I'm sorry if that's like choppy piece together, but hopefully you guys got information from what I was saying. No, yeah. I got the idea. Yeah. Wow. Basically, it was haunted probably, but also it was probably the daughter, but also probably not all just her. It couldn't have been all her. No. Because some things you're like, huh? And she wasn't in the room and it's not like, it's 1970. It doesn't add up. What's she gonna do unless she's really bored, but... Yeah. And then, like, in the kitchen situation with the plates and the knives and the fridge and everything, she couldn't have done everything at once, and she wasn't even in the room, really. Yeah. Even if they were on strings, they would have felt them at one point, because they both went over there. Yeah, and, like, he went over the knife block and it flew at him. It came off the wall. Yeah. Yeah. No, Yeah. That's crazy. Should we explain the difference between ghosts and poltergeists and, like, demons? Sure. Basically, a ghost is, like, your average Joe. 
Like, if I were to die and start messing with things, you'd be like, oh, okay. Just a ghost. There's someone here with us. Mm -hmm. A poltergeist is, it can be like a demonic kind of energy. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people think that they're not necessarily human. Or they were human and they're into something else now. Yeah. But that's where you start getting into, like, possessions and terrible, horrible things happening, like fires starting. Yeah, usually poltergeist activity is categorized by, like, things flying around, things moving often. Or when you see, like... Destructive stuff. Videos online of, like, door slamming, like, all the cabinets slamming shut at the same time. Yes. That's poltergeist stuff. And, like... It's different if, like, a ghost moves something than, mm-hmm. like, a poltergeist, like, moving everything in a room. Like a That's pest. different. Like. And it's, like, they have more power than yeah. a normal person. And they usually feed a off. A normal person ghost. Like, negative bad energy. Yeah. Whereas, like, a demon, depending on what you believe, is kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Those it's most evil spirits of yeah. sort. It's an evil spirit. It was never human. Never mm-hmm. existed in the way that we exist. They've never had a body. They never will have a body. They're and just they're mad about it. Here to be mad and angry yeah. and possession and bad, bad, bad stuff. Worse, I feel like poltergeist and demon can kind of you can kind of overlap. interchange them. Yeah, but yeah, just wanted to put that in there. Yeah, crazy fun times. Well, thank you so much. I don't think I've heard of that one, actually. Yeah, I tried to do something a little more. A little out there. Yeah, because I'd already covered most of their bigger cases. Yeah, hopefully, that was good, though. Hopefully you guys can understand it. I'm I trying, trying to read late at night after a migraine. It's not it's rough, and it's dark in here. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. Remember to tune in next week. Um, when, what's going Next week starts our Halloween cases for when this comes out, right? Yeah. Okay. So the 24th, we're starting to release one mini episode every single day. It will be a full-size case, but just one instead of two. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope you guys enjoy it. We're so excited. We love spookies. Um, remember to follow us on Instagram. We'll be posting when we upload. You can find good info on there. Mm-hmm. Um, remember to rate, comment, review, subscribe. And remember to plug in your heating pads, take your meds, and stay spooky. Stay spooky. Goodbye. Goodbye.